so weird. <laughs> this is the queer cafeteria. The queer cafeteria. A fed up cast. And you're sitting with us at the queer kids table. This podcast is a companion to the mm. annual Fed Up Fest, a queer and trans punk fest in Chicago. Classes in session. Welcome to Queer Cafeteria. Hey, I'm Ash. I use they, them pronouns. Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm cool with they, them, their. Bing, bing, bing. I'm E, and I prefer no pronouns, but they or he is fine. I'm Masha, and I'm cool with she, her, or they, them, or any pronoun, I guess, if you're being respectful. The theme of this episode is class in honor of May Day, International Workers' Day. We wanted to explore class as it relates to being queer and trans because we too often pay lip service to class while completely glossing over how we reproduce classism in our lives and supposedly radical communities. So we asked random queerdos at a punk show in Columbus, Ohio about their class, prized possessions, and relationship to work. We also asked a friend and labor organizer about tips for unionizing and reducing the exploitation of working people. We spoke with past and present members of an anarchist worker co-op. And we'll hear music from queer and trans punks singing directly about class, money, and power. But first, let's check in with each other and hype some things we're excited about right now. So, very exciting. The bands have been announced and they are posted... So be sure to check out Fed Up Fet's Facebook and likely Instagram accounts for um, the announcements of the lineup. The artists, tablers, and workshops for Fed Up Fest 2017 will be released very soon. This year, we've got a really exciting surprise panel of some amazing folks, so make sure you come check that out. And we're also stoked that Tavi Veraldi will be designing the Fed Up Fest 2017 official poster. And uh, Moni Nunez is going to create the art for this year's t-shirt. And they're both going to be awesome. They'll be released to the public soon, so stay tuned for that. Oh, hey, you like pizza? Come eat some with us at Demos on June 2nd. Demos at The Crotch, a.k.a. Six Corners, a.k.a. Wicker Park, a.k.a. Bro Zone. We're going to listen to six <laughs> sick bands, and it's all going to benefit Fed Up Fest, which ultimately benefits El Rescate. Also, you like biking? Oh, hey, there's a Queer the Way scavenger hunt all by bike on June 3rd with a party, barbecue, bounce house, and show to follow. Oh, hey, you like snacks? You like dancing? Come eat some snacks and come dance on June 17th. There'll even be a homo core story core style booth where you can tell us your stories. It'll be a Fed Up Fest benefit and a queer cafeteria six-month anniversary party. And there'll be all the artists we're showing at Fed Up Fest featured. Oh, hey, you like other rad fests? Check out Filth Fest in June. And Break Free Fest is happening as we're recording this, but you should definitely check them out on social media also. So Queer Cafeteria was in Mask Magazine. Uh, We had a super adorable photo shoot. And you should hop right over to maskmagazine.com.org slash edu slash fuck you and check it out. May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. And previously, in episode two, Consent, we shouted out Trans Lifeline. And just a reminder, their phone number is 877-565-8860. In addition to mental health resources for moments of crisis, I'd also like to bring folks' attention to an organization called Other Lives. Other Lives is a peer support network and advocacy organization that takes a radical approach to addressing the needs of fellow trauma survivors. 
So their vision is envisioning a world where it is safe for survivors to be heard. And their mission is to promote survivors' voices and better access to care. To help promote their mission and vision, they've created a forum and are working on resource lists and various writing projects. The organization is founded on the belief that individual healing is just one part of the issue and that we also need our lives and our culture to change. So be sure to check out otherlives.org for more info and to get involved in this really incredible community. In their song, Pink Money, Baltimore's anti-androgen critique the pink washing of major corporations. So in honor of Schmabsolute Vodka-sponsored Pride Month, here's Pink Money by Anti-Androgen. to Asheville for the Another Carolina Anarchist Book Fair and got to interview several rad folks for this episode along the way. And here's what they had to say. What's your most prized possession or what couldn't you survive without? Definitely my saxophone. I guess my body. My grandfather's ring. That's a really good question. Probably a bed. My teddy bear willy. <sighs> I've had him since I was three. Uh, I have some Soviet pins from my grandfather that he actually had when he lived in Russia. What was your favorite food growing up? Um, I guess probably like fruit, like papaya or something. I lived in South Africa when I was really young, and there was always like fresh fruit growing on trees. That show was tight. Uh, Hebrew national hot dogs. Hot rice pudding. Fettuccine Alfredo. My mom worked at a vegan restaurant, and she would bring home this like spinach and escarole pie. It was really good. I would always be really excited when she brought it home. Halushki. Butter sandwiches. Cheese stuffed pizza crust. Just the crust with the cheese. My elementary school had the best cheese stuffed crust I've ever had. How do you labor or what do you do or how do you survive or how do you pay the bills? I'm a student in Canada, so I get pretty decent funding. I'm also a barista, server, bartender, and I guess like that band sort of makes money, but it's like, you know, maybe 20 bucks here and there. (laughs) I am the manager at a corporate business (laughs) that sells candles. So right now I work in clothing retail, but I have had a lot of different jobs. I've done farm work. I have worked uh, moving boats. I've done a lot of like different types of manual labor and uh, it's pretty much exclusively that my whole life. Um, whatever job I can find, the job I'll have this summer is at KFC. I've worked there on and off for the past three years. I'm a camp counselor. I've worked as a corn maze, as a corn crop cop. Um, I'm going to have a law internship where I'm getting paid. So I'm a baker at a bagel shop and I'm starting as a serving assistant at a wine bar. Well, growing up, I knew money was very tight, coming from a second-generation uh, immigrant family, so any opportunity I can find money, I take. I've applied to every scholarship under the sun, and I work full-time as a student as well. I have summer jobs. My parents pretty much fund me throughout the year, along with my scholarships. I run a burrito shop, 
it's not quite fast food, but it's like local fast food, so I feel like it's more justifiable. What makes you happy, or what are you passionate about? Like, we're musicians, but we're not, uh, like, solely that. I also really like writing, like, I'm in school and stuff, and we're all, like, sort of academics as well as musicians, and, like, just finding a way to, like, create new stuff instead of just, like, consuming things all the time is, like, a really important way to not feel like you're just, like, floating aimlessly. Currently learning on trying to be more mindful and have lots of healthy alone time. And yeah, just not wanting to work hard, but working hard because I have to, and so I can do things that I love with my friends. I, I'm really passionate about my dog and the people in my life, uh, taking care of the living things that are around me in any way that I can. I'm really passionate about playing music, sort of like discovering new ways to express myself through music. I've been doing soft sculpture work for two years. I've shown in a couple galleries around Columbus and in a couple other states too. I think what makes me happy is doing things for other people, whether it's a family member that I know or um, another loved one. And so I think that's why I chose social work because it was like a, a way to kind of carry that into making money because we all have to make money, unfortunately, to survive. <laughs> um, so right now I'm kind of in an exploratory phase and I'm really excited I'm doing my own independent research on the Jewish experience in modern Russia. Playing music, um, learning Yiddish, and trying to foster Jewish community in Chicago. Basically like fucking punk, fucking Jewish shit. I'm really passionate about music. I've played different instruments since I was, before I could remember, probably before I was walking, I was playing the recorder, and music's always been a part of my life. Uh, how did you learn how to do those things, or where are you at with that, or? Yeah, so this is my first band ever, and I kind of got like, het, like enlisted into it. Um, yeah, it's definitely like a gender thing, I find, for like dudes in the punk scene who have been like, just like shitting out bands since they were like 14 years old. And they had like those years, and like that's also like a class thing to like be able to like pay for drum lessons or whatever the fuck. And it's like, um, they just like had those years from like 14 to 18 or whatever when they were just in like shitty bands, like trying things, like not being embarrassed, cause like everything's a mess when you're that age. And then like by the time they're like my age now, which is 21, they're like, okay, it's time to like do like real good bands and stuff. And it's like, okay, I'm just starting, but we'll be fine. My dad and my uncle mostly taught me how to play guitar, um, probably because I was socialized as a dude. My town school system had a pretty good music education program, so I didn't start playing guitar till I was 14, but I've been doing music in various ensembles since I was like nine. Well, I was, I was going to shows and like no one Everyone was always complaining about not having a drummer. And I was like, fuck, like I wanna, I'll, I'll just do it. <laughs> like, I'm just gonna learn. And so I think I had a friend when I was living in Champaign who had a really shitty little electric drum kit in the basement. And it was like covered in spiders all the time. And I was like, well, I'm gonna go down here and watch YouTube videos and learn for four beat <laughs> and try to do my thing. And I got asked to be in a band immediately and it was terrible and um i wanted to keep on doing it i, I started like i don't know expressing myself 
creatively maybe like nine-ish years ago. And I picked up a guitar and my grandpa showed me four chords and I'm like, okay, you want me to play blues rock, but I'm gonna play the songs that I like because I like how they sound and I wanna make those sounds too. And I, w I just personally really like that. I'm really lucky because I was ha just happened to be really passionate about that. I get a lot of satisfaction from like, I like the lines I just put down. I like the sounds I just made. And liking those as much as I do has kind of just propelled me to where I'm at to like be, in a be around other people that also like to make sounds and put lines and make them cool just for the sake of making it well with with music i was originally um doing like jazz performance uh i studied that really intensely all uh, through my time growing up but when i was uh, 17 i had an injury that made it so i couldn't use my hand for a year and i still can't feel anything in my right hand so um i had to kind of stop doing jazz so my musical journey had a really i guess a really big roadblock sort of led me towards more kind of textural and abstract modes of like playing saxophone so a lot of the things that I've done have sort of been a result of like circumstance out of my control and just sort of like adapting to them and losing things that at first seemed really difficult, but in a way it kind of ended up just like presenting something that wasn't better or worse, but just different to me. Halifax, Nova Scotia's Ecom Seacom gives us a glimpse of gentrification at the hands of an opportunistic landlord after white queers, punks, and artists pave the way in their song, Under the Vinyl Siding, The Cedar. Here's Halifax's Ethan Seacom. My name is Shmuley Sultanov. My pronouns are he, him, or they, them. I'm a gender non-conforming Jewish communist or whatever of some description. Communist without adjectives, whatever. It's important that we be cognizant of our particular queer subcultures in their class dimension. If your sort of like circle of queer friends is like all of y'all are in college it's like it warrants some like you know introspection about that for some people it seems like being queer is like you very tied in with like your particular reading of judith butler or something you know so i guess the the, the first thing i want to point out is that for especially for the the anarchists out there in radio land you know other other folks marxism i think in a lot of ways doesn't necessarily need to be tied to what we think of as a marxist political project certainly there's a long history of anarchists who've used marxist theory marxist ideas also nationalists i feel like we don't we don't talk about that enough you know people like the fln um a lot of Zionists, even even a lot of fascists, actually, you know, sort of maybe not necessarily like engaged directly with Marx, but really like took a lot of ideas of like what class struggle is, you know, this idea of like bourgeois society, you know, especially in the first half of the 20th century, you know, 
everyone was engaging with Marx in, in one way or another, whether or not they were communists or nationalists or anarchists. So I guess what what I think is a kind of the the core of Marxist analysis of class that makes it different from a lot of other kinds of class analysis is that for Marx, class is a, um, it's a relation and it's a relation of exploitation. So, right, you can't have a working class without an owning class, you know, this sort of extension of the master-slave dialectic where you can't have a, a slave without a master, you can't have a master without a slave. You understand that as a relation. And so, right, this is what really gets highlighted in a lot of Marxist class analyses, whether it's capitalism, whether you're looking at feudalism or something else, is how these two sort of classes interact. And so for Marx, it's about the bourgeoisie, the owning class relies on the proletariat, who are this, you know, the identifying characteristics of a proletarian are sort of that you have no productive property, you don't own a factory, you may not even own like a, you don't own a farm, you know, you have, you have nothing to sell but your labor power, looking at class as a relationship of exploitation. And so that would really contrast with other frameworks that we have for looking at class. So the sort of conventional, mainstream, perhaps normy way of thinking about class would be something like income brackets, where class is this very um, a quantitative thing. Well, you, can, you can understand a lot about someone by looking at how much income they make or how much wealth they have. You know, wealth being, you know, just what you're holding on to, income being like how much money you're making. I, I think that's another sort of important colloquial framework that we have for talking about class, which doesn't really get talked about enough, is like this idea of sort of blue collar versus white collar. And you could be making the same amount of money, you know, driving a truck, you know, working in a steel mill, you know, these are middle class jobs. Anyone you know who works in, in skilled trades, you know, like they make, they make bank. But there is absolutely a distinction between like an electrician, a plumber, an underwater welder, whatever, who makes the same amount of money as like a, a clerical assistant, an office worker, a, a computer programmer. Looking at this sort of like blue collar, white collar distinction, I think is very interesting because that's really when you get into kind of social values. You know, class is a system of values is something a little more symbolic. It's important that we think about the ways that we signal status, especially in, in a lot of queer circles I've noticed. A status and class, I think, sometimes get confused, and it's important to have very, it's important to have, like, really clear definitions of what these terms mean. So I would say class is, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a Marxist about it. Class is a relationship of exploitation. I think in a lot of ways, status is kind of how you signal your class position. Like, when I say status, like, I mean things that are much more symbolic. The kinds of language you use, I think, the way you dress, you know, the sort of, like, way that you are perceived in the world what people think your class is and I think how you embody like class as an identity rather than class as an objective relationship of exploitation and power is status for me and it, I think it's important to not confuse these two things because I think you know people will say you know like like a like you know oh if I walk around wearing a real tree shirt all the time you know like and like a trucker cap, then I can absolve myself from my guilt of having grown up, you know, in the suburbs in a middle class family and my parents put me through college and whatnot. And we kind of like peel back status and start to recognize our real positions in like a relationship of exploitation. That's when real like cross class coalitions can start, you know, where you can have students and workers, you know, fighting together for the same thing because we're all being fucked over by the same thing, you know, and we can maybe be a lot more militant with ourselves. Which is what we need, because, like, fucking overwork kills, you know? <laughs>
I, I was talking with someone at work the other day, you know, just like he was being like, you know, like you work like 12 hours a day. Like, that's no way to live. It's like, yeah, it's not any fucking way to live. It's not sustainable. And it's like, what? You work all the fucking time, you know? Fuck that. It's no way to fucking live. And we don't have to live like that. So the only organization that matters is you and your fucking comrades. Punch your fucking boss. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> Next up is Argentina's Funerales with Mi Frankenstein, which describes distressingly vast class disparities. So here it is. coming out story from an anonymous friend we made at Asheville's Another Carolina Anarchist Book Fair. Okay, so about like the asexuality, when I had to come out to myself, I realized I was different from a lot of my friends whose like center or their focus with people was having sex. So they would be like, oh, I'm so bored with that person. We didn't even have sex. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? They're so cool. Like, whatever. <laughs> Aren't you going to hang out with them anyways? I realized that I, I had a different perception of people and their importance to me. And I was like, oh yeah, that person's my friend. Or I feel like romantic towards that person, but I probably don't want to have sex with them. So yeah, that's what I was, that's when I came out to myself. I have to say these words to people a lot, all the time, because I'm very social, and a lot of times people think I'm available for a sexual interaction, or I like to make out a lot, <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I usually have to communicate that because I, I don't think people like to make out as much as I do, because <laughs> I'll be like, okay, bye, <laughs> or... People will be like, kid, you want to come home with me? I'm like, yeah. And then I go home with them. I'm like, what kind of tea do you have? And then I drink tea. And then I'm like, okay, bye. Or I'm like, you can spoon me because I identify as a little spoon. But that's about it. But I usually have to be like extremely assertive with people. And I'm also sober. I've always been sober. So that kind of changes a lot of my interactions as well, even though I, yeah, asexual. I talk about it all the time. Because I'm such a slut, I identify as an asexual slut, and it feels really good. <laughs> because I, I love love, and I love to love my friends. Sometimes people are outraged, sometimes they're like, oh, okay, cool. And then other times, uh, yeah, it just depends on the person. 
but like people get very angry because they feel like I'm rejecting them, but it, it's not the case. Oh, also, you know, like my asexuality is linked to my creativity because I play music. I like have a constant soundtrack going on in my head. And the moment I have sex, it's gone. So like when my bandmate and I are writing albums, we don't have sex. In fact, we both haven't had sex in a very long time. And like, I was like, oh, I think I'm gonna have sex. And then, <laughs> and then I was talking about it with my bandmate and I was like, and then we're like, we talk about it. We're like, oh, like, oh, I wonder how that's gonna affect you. Oh, do you think that's gonna be cool? Like because I'm more focused on my music than having sex with people. But that just is the least of my concerns. But I feel really excited to have so many lovers who are like cool with me not having sex. And they're always stoked when I do want to, but that's not that often. <laughs> Fistfuckers Money Talks, and you can hear more of this North Carolina band at this year's Fed Up Fest 2017. Beep, beep, beep. It's a queer kids table. Mm -hmm. This is the queer kids table. Wait, where are we? <laughs> the queer kids table. E chatted with queer and trans workers at Firestorm Books and Coffee, a collectively owned radical bookstore, cafe, and community space in Asheville, North Carolina that's been around since 2008. James worked at Firestorm in the past, and Amr just got started. So we wanted to hear their take on their socioeconomic status, laboring, and challenges to classism as current and former members of a workplace based on cooperation, empowerment, and equity. So my name is Amr, and I use male pronouns. Uh, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I guess I've been out for like a 10 plus years. Are you from Asheville? Uh, yeah. No, no, I'm from um, like northern Appalachia, mm -hmm. like a super small town in Pennsylvania of like 6,000 people. So yeah, I moved I moved down here like seven years ago or something. My name is Jay. Uh, I use they, them pronouns, although most of was switching to using all pronouns or like they, them, he, him. Um, yeah, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I have been identifying as queer and trans or something of that nature um, for probably also like 10 years. And are you from Chicago? I guess I grew up in a town outside of Chicago in Illinois, like a small town, mm -hmm. small suburb. Speaking of growing up, um, what class would you say you were growing up? Um, I would say that 
My family was like pretty solidly working poor slash like maybe bordering on working class, but like mostly working poor. My family was, still is upper middle class. And how would you say you both knew that growing up? Since the town I grew up in was also pretty solidly working poor, it like really kind of wasn't a huge issue until we all reached a certain age and like clothes started being a huge status symbol in, you know, middle school and high school, whereas before that it just kind of didn't really fucking matter. But I do remember before that there, there kind of not being always enough food to eat or whatever, like electricity never really got shut off or anything like that, but like food and day-to-day resources were, were definitely things to be like conserved and definitely like an issue. Mm-hmm. But I think I didn't really have any kind of like class analysis of my childhood until I was an adult and like gained a little bit of um, gained a little bit of language for thinking about that. Yeah, uh, my parents and all my cousins and relatives are all of like probably a more um, lower middle class stature, and my my dad became um, and I think that how I began to recognize that I had an advantage that others didn't was looking at how my lifestyle differed from my cousins and mostly just recognizing that we could go on vacation more often than my cousins and other relatives could. And I think that I recognized that, but I definitely grew into that analysis even more as I got older. How would you all identify now? Have you been upwardly or downwardly mobile? Have you stayed the same? I would say that I've, like, either maintained a, like, working poor status or I've been, like, somewhat maybe upwardly mobile. I I wouldn't call myself, like, middle class, I would say. I, I, I'd say I'm pretty solidly the same, but I, like, have, mm-hmm. like, pretty consistently zero dollars to my name or perhaps a negative amount of money to my name. So maybe maybe I've, like, kind of maybe gone down. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but... Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would. I definitely would not be of the income bracket of my father, but I definitely, and I definitely think that I will never be of that income bracket, given like my trajectory or like that. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. So, um, so I guess I, in that sense, I'm downwardly mobile, or I'm from downwardly mobile. But I benefit so much from my fam, my family's class that I, mm-hmm. that I like don't really feel. Like, that's an appropriate phrase to use mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, then, where do you see the intersections of, of queerness or transness and class? I I, I feel like I have a difficult time seeing how, how queerness has impacted my class. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I feel like there are ways in which class has impacted my queerness and transness. I went to... Um, a private little liberal arts college where I studied gender studies, mm-hmm. got access to LGBT community, and like the, these like catchphrases and ins and outs. And I, I've read Judith Butler. I like know all those things that a lot of people have not been introduced to and would have to like spend way more time speaking out because they didn't have a platform like that. So I see those things very visibly in my life, like these advantages. I suppose also with a sort of subcultural norm of, of instability, because like queers and trans people are ex- an extremely targeted demographic, really psychologically has impacted me and you know has has limited in some ways like my 
great job option mm-hmm. sort of stuff, but has extremely like exploded out the amounts of like solidarity and mutual mm-hmm. aid that I like. See, I feel I can fucking rely on my friends to like mm-hmm. get my back if anything happens, you know, which is a really, really excellent feeling. So on the one hand, it's like extreme instability, but on the other hand, it's like the community of people who kind of get it, you know, kind of mm-hmm. get it immediately. How has paid or unpaid labor that you've done um, impacted or been impacted by being queer or trans? I feel like I have like two things that popped into my head, which is um, one that like I have had, I have had, had experience of like being um, like harassed or tokenized or just like small little things that I've felt like like little like like harassed for like being gay something that I have been noticing is that I've uh, I currently am applying to like ton of jobs right now and I'm applying to a lot of like social justice non-profit positions mm-hmm. and I I like feel as if they would like me more if I said that I was queer and trans because they want that mm-hmm. like <laughs> on their staff like oh my god that's so real yeah like it's just weird like um like how nonprofits and like social justice settings like really profit off of like identity politics and I hate that. <laughs> I yeah, in in like answering this question, I wanna be sensitive to the fact that I'm a trans masculine spectrum person mm-hmm. and like perhaps were I a differently spectrum person, like a trans feminine spectrum person, my answer may be extremely different because like the intersections of oppressions mm-hmm that folks seemingly tend to, or do tend to face trans-femme um, are very different than yes, trans-mask people. And I don't, I absolutely don't want to invisibilize trans-mask spectrum oppressions. Like, that is not what I want to do, because I feel like it's not an Olympics, it's not, you know, a race or anything like that, but it is, like, something that I want to just give a little bit of voice to. Mm-hmm. Um, and... <clears throat> I I think that in Asheville, it's very sort of like liberal slash neoliberal as far as the job market goes. Like, and it's also a small sort of business owner community. Um, I think that how it plays out here is pretty similar for me to what James mentioned, which is like, oh, like you're a trans person and like, you're a trans masculine spectrum trans person there we we can like cover our bases there you're like seemingly like maybe kind of a sexy option or like a a, like a good sort of like choice or whatever to make us look really good um to make us look really liberal and accepting or whatever um as far as like transness impacting or like waged or unwaged labor I'm I'm not entirely sure. I know that it has. I know that I've been fired for being trans before, like at, at one in in one instance. And I've definitely experienced, like, for lack of a better phrase, low level psychological warfare from people, especially when, like, you know, Trump. There was a Trump event, like, down the street from my my job, like, literally down the street, and so everyone came to eat there afterwards. And that was like motherfucking hell on earth with like the amount of comments and stares and just like dehumanizing moments over and over and over again. And since it's a like 
pretty open kitchen with, you know, and service workers are dehumanized already. Like in the eyes of customers, it was, it was, it's kind of like a double whammy of Mm -hmm. like, what is that? Like what, it didn't touch my food or whatever. So I'm not, yeah, there, there was, there, there have been instances like that and there are instances like that every day. But I think that just people who are service workers can, you know, it was probably not a shock to them that this happens either. I am wondering how you all see classism getting reproduced in these punk spaces, in radical spaces, in queer communities. Mm. Um, what does that look like? Um, I absolutely think that classism is permeated um, in our communities. Um, like, There's no way that a subculture could not have classism because we live in a subculture. We don't have our own separate culture. We still <laughs> yeah. function with like, yeah. within hegemony and we still like live in a capitalist society. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, like, from the ways in which, like, how we create community and who gets access to, like, that community, who gets access to that knowledge, um, I think it's everywhere. I think, I think that, I, I don't think I've really ever, um, I don't think, I don't think I've, I've talked to anyone who thinks that that doesn't ex- exist. <laughs> um, um, what I think is that it takes a backseat to other, like, uh, more hot topic I- identities, um, within, like, identity politics. And I think that I think that it's also because I think there's a, a few parts of this, which is one, I think that um, people, I think that I don't believe that we talk about class enough for a few reasons. One is which that uh, class can be really invisible and um, mm-hmm. really elusive and complex. And I think that mm-hmm. um, it is really easy to scapegoat or pretend that you don't have class because it's easy to hide it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that within our against politician, like. Um, progressive liberal like social justice tumblr world we've created that like having privilege of any kind is kind of, like is horrible and horrendous so mm-hmm. um we've made it so that people don't want to talk about having privilege um especially if you don't have to uh and so i see people visibly scapegoating out of that conversation of acknowledging privilege because uh, yeah they want to pretend they don't have it and, and i have felt that too and i think it's I think that has something to do with our fallout culture and the way that that makes us that we like feel ashamed of being like of being honest of who we are when in fact like mm-hmm. for all of us to show up with every single component of our lives is actually the healthiest ways that we can like create community. But I do think that there's this huge idea around that like we don't talk about it enough um, mm-hmm. or when we do it's through a shame rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people who have privilege, class privilege are ashamed or people who don't have class privilege are ashamed. And I think that's that's a shame <laughs> that, <laughs> that that exists. I could like could not agree more with that, and like it it also like this rhetoric takes all of the complexities about privilege out of it. You know, it makes yeah, it yes. flat and sort of, and it's such a complex kind of system that enacts on like everyone and you know we're, takes all of the nuance out of the conversation. I could not yeah. agree more with what you said. So, and other than starting your own uh, worker-owned co-op, how have you seen people um, effectively combat classism? Apart from, you know, effectively trying to carve out a space in a capitalist world that, like, allows for none of that stuff, I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. There's, like, houses, like, communal houses that food share, and there's, like, resource sharing among people, like... Uh, like, say somebody has a car and they, like, 
we'll give somebody a ride or something like that, like mutual aid sort of, you know, situations, I would, I would say, effectively combat, you know, any kind of classism. I know that in uh, the house that I'm about to move into with like four, four or five other people who are punks and anarchists near that we're going to try and do um, our rent based on income. Um, mm-hmm. So like, I, that's, that's a model that I think is like really cool is to, is to work on it in a way like that. But I'm going to be plugging in um, this organization called Research Generation that I do work with. And they, they worked with people who come from wealth to support the redistribution mm-hmm. of wealth, land, and power. Um, Whoa, cool. Yeah, they are an awesome group, uh, and essentially what they do is they offer themselves as a resource to help people who come from wealth, whether it's trust funds or hedge funds, to not only, like, learn what that means and, like, learn what inheritance means and, like, why you have that and, like, learn about, like, class and classism and capitalism, but help you redistribute that money towards grassroots organizations, towards black-led movements and towards indigenous movements. And I think that they are one of the best organizations that I've seen that's effectively working towards distributing and finding the commons. And I think that that's like my best example of, of a group that I've seen that's like really effectively fighting against that. You want to get us going? Oh my God, I took notes. I felt really connected to, if I may, um, you know, the concept of not really understanding class until like material clothing in particular became a thing. I would say it became very obvious around like sixth grade for me. Um, I definitely was poor AF um, and still am. Uh, I've had weird waves of opportunity and luck that have come and gone, but I definitely have nothing backing. My mom didn't. I came from a single family uh, or single, single parent home. And the clothing thing was a big deal. There was a lot of shame built around that. And, uh, I know my mom always drove like some piece of shit car. Um, she had what she could get and I would honestly make her drop me off down the block. And like, it took me a long time to realize that like, that that's fucked up (laughs) I never really understood why my mom worked so hard and we didn't have what other people had Um, and it still pisses me off my mom still works and you know will continue to work because of this very uneven distribution of wealth and resources Mm -hmm. something that is in the queers and A's also made me think about it in terms of uh that hit home was like disability and class um or i mean just like other intersections of like different identities and everything or like immigration and class or like a lot of stuff that we don't really talk through let alone like queerness and like class and everything right um but but yeah like growing up how disability interacts with like I don't know, just like, I don't even know where I'm going with it, but... I mean, are you talking about a specific example for you? I don't know. I mean, like, growing up, like, my dad, like, couldn't work pretty much, like, since I was super young, and, like, how that interacts with class, where it's like he was, like, on welfare and shit, but I don't know. But yeah, still being working class, or, like, sort of complicating class as an identity 
like what Shmuley was talking about, like with class and complicating it instead of just like, this is what your parents' jobs were and this is how you know what class you are and, and like actually like digging into that and like class and status as being different things. Yeah, like for me, my family immigrated here from a communist country with refugee status. So, you know, we came in through the Jewish Community Center and with full documentation and the first time I noticed class was when we were living in a house or like a townhouse or something. And the people who sponsored us, like there was an, a Jewish American family that sponsored us. And that was like the requirement for refugee status. And my parents got really freaked out that I was going to tell them that my dad had purchased a luxury car. Um, because... I guess within the first decade of being in America, my family experienced a lot of upward mobility. And that was really, I just, I still remember that moment very clearly of them being like, do not open the garage when they show up. And class has always been a point of contention between my family and I because they moved here specifically so that I could experience a differentiation of classes. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents, uh, the way that they talked about their coming up was people were socially stratified based on like education and like culturedness Mm. um because everybody made the same amount of money but some people spoke better some people you know had a better understanding of western cultural canon and that was how they were you know uh that's how they they told me that they were, like, socially stratified in their community. Um, and so me, like, when I started, when I became more radicalized and when I became more aware of um, the way that systemic oppression works in America, they were very upset with me that I, like started seeing that and that I was rebelling. And my parents, I mean, like, it was interesting because they would, there were certain things that, you know, they were like, never trust cops, like, (laughs) but they were very, very into private property. You know, it's it's always hard for me to talk to my friends who refer to Lenin specifically uh, because of the stories that I heard growing up. And it's hard for me to find relevancy in that. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that it gets to a lot of what you were talking about, too. There being a difference between either class or status or there being a difference between having social capital, having cultural capital and having economic capital. Like you can come up in a family uh, that is upwardly mobile and have wealth. But if you don't do what you're saying, like if you don't like ha- speak the right way or if you don't know the right references, if you don't have the right connections and networks, that also matters. And I think that that's a really important part of talking about class that we often overlook. People think about just like, what is your income? What is your net worth? What kind of wealth do you have? Um, And I could say right now, I don't have that much. Um, I probably have a lot more than a lot of people in the world. But like compared to where I came from, like what James was saying, I will probably never have the class status of my parents. I grew up in a very like upper middle class home. I can't see the trajectory that I'm on being anywhere near that, but I will never be able to strip away the things that I learned. I know how to navigate institutions like like healthcare. I know how to like fill out forms. I know how to talk to people in bureaucratic situations. I could probably talk my way out of a lot of things because I have that language and I have that cultural capital. So to pretend that like right now because I'm a service worker at a cafe, you know, that I don't know how to access these things is like such a lie. And I think that that's where 
our talking about class often becomes this very flattening thing. We don't really know how to talk about it in a very complex way that takes all those things into account. Yeah, and to speak to that, uh, thinking of like other forms of capital that you can have, um, not coming up with a lot of like financial resources, et cetera. Like I, I realized in listening to you say that E that like I used a lot of mimicking to gain like social capital and other ways to push myself because I just happened to be able to like see like, I don't know why, but like I, I could see that very clearly that there was a language and a way to be and a, a way to like that you could gain things without actually having like a stockpile of money uh, in other ways. And, you know, for better and worse at times, like that's the stuff that I used for a long time, um, even just to feel safe and secure in spaces, not even not even just about, you know, like being able to get a job interview or even just like word of mouth, like you should hire this person. Great. Cool. You know, that was a lot of social capital for me. And I learned that from seeing that that could happen and, and built that up as a way to a method to uh, try to cha- try to have more, I guess. Yeah. And then also, so this one time I did this whole like discussion breakdown of like class with like some folks that I was living with of like both like what's your occupation, what's your education level, what were your parents' occupations, like what was like the highest level of education that your parents had, grown, or like all these things. But also another thing that really stuck with me was. Uh, growing up like what were some things that like you were encouraged to do culturally or like socially and what were things that you were discouraged to do and it could be stuff like that uh and it's not necessarily like a working class upper middle class like whatever like working poor thing across the board that you're like taught to do or it's like my mom really encouraged me to like help other folks out even though that we like had like didn't have shit but it's like and i feel like that's what like draws me to like anarchism or cooperative economics is like we don't have shit but together we at least have something kind of a thing you know and like thinking about that or like i don't know or like the opposite like folks with a bunch of money and wealth like a lot of the times are encouraged to like not share that around and that's sort of like what james was talking about is like actually like learning how to undo that but yeah i guess just in general like disrupting sort of like what cultural things were taught doesn't necessarily depend on like class but it informs like how we interact with class i guess yeah yeah i think if we recognize that that social or cultural capital never goes away i think one of the things that maybe we can do is to try and redistribute some of those resources like what james was talking about instead of this kind of shame rhetoric which i appreciated they point to because i think that hiding things or just masking things or not talking about things is like completely unhelpful because if someone does have resources if someone does have knowledge ins and outs you know knows how to like fill out a fafsa you know help out someone who doesn't and the shame also built around it leads to people not being capable of asking for any type of help or like you know and that was a big one for me like watching like my my whole childhood it was like Mm -hmm. oh fuck all right well we got to go get support from you know this food bank or like and it was uncomfortable like even though my mom was like this is just this is how it is like you know but it was like fuck I hope nobody from school sees me here which really if they saw me there they were there too so you know (laughs) uh but yeah it's it's just disturbing to me how people work 
And then there's just like always people who don't work that just have so much more. And it's and it doesn't even matter. It's not even about like the work. It's just like fucked up to see everyone like just go and grind. And then like some some people have to fucking eat shit and fucking smash their faces to the concrete every day. And then some people get to like ride on a fucking cloud. And whether they know it or not, you know, they get to do that. And some people don't. <laughs> so this is fucked. Although I don't share this optimism, I appreciate it at least Amr's uh, warm feelings about contrasting the the constant instability that they feel or that other queer and trans folks feel in regards to class or labor or socioeconomic status versus this idea of this explosion of community. Um, they briefly mentioned that like though they feel like they are struggling or they see people around them struggling constantly, they know that there are other people like them to rely on they know that there are other people around them that care about them or that you know we that we have each other's backs um and i do think that i see that in some ways um probably i'm assuming i see it in my life more than like normative people do i don't know i'm not a normie um but i'm sort of assuming that like like somebody who works at like fucking chase bank uh doesn't have a super like awesome community of people uh that's like looking out for them yeah um i don't know i think something that i was thinking of was like when you were saying before or like seeing someone else in like a food bank or something and like not wanting to talk about that or being afraid of that but then it's like they would be there too is like the only people that benefit from us not talking about class is people with money And people with money are afraid to talk about the fact that they have money because they also benefit from, like, like what James was saying, like, not having privilege in, like, these, like, spaces that are rad that they appreciate and that would decrease their already, like, massive social capital, right? (laughs) Um, Or, like, normative social capital, but in these, like, non-normative spaces, right? Um, But then it's, like, actually talking about class and talking about being poor and talking about that with, like, other poor folks is a threat to capitalism. And it's a threat to, like, people in power. And it's, like... Rise up! Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, like, thinking about that, like, as, like, queer and trans folks, as, like, folks of color, as indigenous folks, as, like, folks with disabilities or disabled folks. um, Like, actually talking about this stuff is a threat. But I guess just to summarize, like, talking about class and, like, money is a threat to people in power. So they shame us for talking about it so we don't disrupt that. And pit each other against one another. You got to get that promotion, step on some people's heads. Yeah. And I'm sure so many other ways that we could just go on and on about, like, the ways. But you're totally right. we're, We're, it's it's practically it is divisive like there are many divisive ways to keep us quiet you know oh and just like to keep the invisible invisible yeah and or eating themselves fighting ourselves Mm -hmm. redistribute that shit or like i feel like there was a really prominent article recently about like ugh, i hate that i'm mentioning an article that i can't fully reference (laughs) uh but just just the general practice of like shaming people in the workplace for talking about their salaries or how much they get paid. Um, this article, I think, was framing people being transparent, uh, like workers being transparent about um, how much they're making as like a really radical move and like um, 
I don't want to overstate that there's certainly other things that workers can do to to collectivize um but definitely pushing back against the culture of like um or like especially the workplace culture of having uh pay not be talked about when i was a manager at this last cafe that i was at one of the owners explicitly told me not to tell or like not let other people find out how much people are making because people would be upset and i'm like i've been told that too at jobs isn't that a bad thing that, like, people would be upset at the fact that they're, like, not getting paid the same amount yeah, as, yeah, like, someone else? Like, <laughs> but yeah, and, like, people having knowledge is a threat mm-hmm. to the bosses. So, as Shmooley says. <laughs> as Shmooley says, punch your dick in, punch your, punch your dick in the boss. <laughs> Don't do punch that. Don't boss. do that. Mug your dad and punch your boss in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> all right you queerdos here's some homework so uh this upcoming june 10th uh there's gonna be counter protests all across the u.s maybe outside of the u.s i'm not sure against this group called act for america uh they're hosting a march against sharia law and act for america is pretty much just like a thinly veiled like white supremacist like conservative grassroots organization that's promoting Islamophobia, xenophobia. As queer and trans folks, we have to stand up against it as anti-fascists, as anti-capitalists, as people of color, uh, as non-Christian folks, as disabled folks. Like, pretty much everyone should just hate this organization. It's great. Um, but Fuck them, and if you're on some kind of line mm-hmm. and not sure which way to go, fuck them. Yeah. Fuck them. So... <laughs> They're also pretty much saying if you're a gay person, you should be for their march because they, I don't know. I don't even know where to go with because it. Because Sharia law is also, they're saying, yeah. maybe homophobic. So they're pretty much saying if you're gay, you should be against Sharia law, so you should march with them, uh, which is just a thinly veiled Islamophobic attempt at promoting like Trump and white supremacy and everything. It's pinkwashing. So on June 10th, come out with us. We're going to be here in Chicago. Look for your nearest Act for America march and hold some signs protesting it. Uh, Look for your nearest anti-fascist or anti-capitalist networks to plan something around it. And don't forget to find out about the anti-fascist organizing going on in your community now. Also, just a reminder, June is Schmabsolute Vodka sponsored Pride. So we highly encourage you to disrupt your local pride. Enjoy yourselves. Hang some banners. Freak some people out. Remind them that they are not the only ones. And remember that there's a long history of disrupting pride, so keep it going. And if you come from wealth or know someone who does, check out Resource Generation to redistribute that shit. Credits and thank yous for this episode go out to Shmuley, Cuties in Springfield, Columbus, and Asheville, Firestorm Co-op, James and Amr, Anti-Androgen, Fistfucker, Ecom Seekum, Funerales, and Downtown Boys for letting us table and make an announcement in the middle of their show. And we'd like to take a moment to send our love to our friends and accomplices in the Little Village neighborhood of Chicago. On May 11th, five of them were arrested in an illegal eviction attempt carried out by the Chicago Police Department under orders from management company Barnett Capital, uh, who describes themselves as 
<clears throat> an alternative investment firm focusing in real estate, asset-based financing, and equipment leasing. In other words, people that are totally down with evicting people. Blah, blah. I know. Fuck you. No war, but punch your landlord in the dick. I don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, so Barnett Capital is one of the main driving forces in the process of displacement and gentrification currently facing the black and brown communities of Lilla Village and North Lawndale. The, our friend's home, affectionately known to some as Swamp Nine, the compound, or Texas, is a haven and safer place for people in the community who have faced chronic homelessness and eviction. It's a multi-generational campaign that's home to people of many identities and backgrounds who continue asking some fundamental questions about the enduring legacies of colonialism. Whose land are we on, and how can we change the way we relate to the land we occupy? You've been snacking at the queer kids' table. <laughs> Class dismissed!